My, um, my friend brother Ashley came to me this morning before the lesson and said, good luck this morning teaching this lesson. Better you than me. So with that being said, we will, um, we will attempt to cover the subject that has been presented to us this morning in our quarterly. I want to start with um, a little bit of background history. Song of Solomon, verse, chapter 1, verse 1. We like to talk about the, the authorship of, of the books we study. The Song of Solomon, verse, chapter 1, verse 1 says, Solomon's Song of Songs. The, the first verse here ascribes the authorship to Solomon. Throughout the, the book of Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, depending on which Bible you're looking at, it's called both. <clears throat> um, chapter 3, verse 7. Look, it is Solomon's carriage, escorted by sixty warriors, the noblest of Israel. Verse 9, King Solomon made for himself the carriage. He made it of wood from Lebanon. And verse 11, Come out, you daughters of Zion, and look at King Solomon wearing the crown, the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. So we can see that it's pretty well received that Solomon was the writer that the subject content in the book was Solomon and his fiancée and later his wife. Um, it also speaks to him in a, di- a different way. It speaks of him as the king. In chapter 1, verse 4, Take me away with you, let us hurry, and let the king bring me into his chambers. And in verse 12, Beloved, while the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. So, obviously, he was king after his father David. So it refers to him by name in the first verse, himself. He ascribes himself as the author. And then he's spoken of by name in other verses. And then he's spoken of as the king. So it is a common view among most biblical scholars that Solomon did indeed write the book of Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. One problem with this view is that in this book, it sees love and marriage as something that is an exclusive, um, something to be enjoyed in a monogamous relationship. Where we have a little problem with Solomon writing that is that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. So, with that being said, how could someone with that many wives and that many concubines write a book like this? At one time... Bible scholars and the most accepted interpretation of the book that it was written in allegory. Allegory is a symbolic narrative, a representation of an abstract or spiritual meaning through concrete or material form. In other words, you say one thing, but you really mean something else. You're giving an example of something that has a different meaning. Uh, with some people, the view was that it represented God's love for His people, uh, the love of Jesus for the church. Um, in fact, there's a very common scripture that's used in chapter 2 and verse 1 that is described, we use it to describe Jesus. Um, King James Version says, Beloved, I am the Rose of Sharon, 
the lily of the valley. That's a, a thing that we use to describe Jesus. And in fact, there's a song written, He's the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. So a lot of times the book of the Song of Solomon is used in an allegory to represent the church and God's love for the church. However, the lesson that we and the literature that we use, the author of this lesson does not at all ascribe to that belief. I'm not going to say it is one or the other, but we're going to present a couple different things here this morning. Um, The more accepted view, according to the author of our, our literature, is that it is an expression of human romantic love. And the author of our lesson also goes on to say that, and I'm going to read this, the inclusion of such a book in the Old Testament shows that God, the creator of romantic love, endorses such passion as good when expressed between a husband and wife. And I think that's very well said. But I do believe that there is a certain amount of allegory in this book as it relates to Christ and the church. But let's not get caught up in which one it is, because it, it also, I believe that it also is a guidebook and, and it is some directions towards romantic love between a husband and a wife. Society today has overly focused on human love and especially the, the physical expression or sex. I mean, it's in advertising, it's in television, movies, billboards, everywhere you go. And that's how human love has been portrayed mostly in our society. And I think it's partly because that we as Christians over the years have had such a difficult time talking about those things that the world just took it upon its own to define the meaning of it. Since we don't talk about it in church, then somebody came up with an idea. Am I right? I mean, when's the last time you heard anything teaching on on romance, love, or sex at, at Sunday school? And not that that's what we're talking about this morning. I'm just saying that if we don't discuss those things, then the world will come up with their version of it. And since it's the only version out there, people buy into it that it's the only version. Then it's too late. Exactly. That's a good point. The Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs is organized around a series of scenes between a person that's referred to as the lover, who is most likely Solomon, and his beloved, and they speak back and forth to each other in a metaphorical language. Now, metaphor, let's look at the definition of a metaphor. A metaphor is a figure of speech in which a term or phrase is applied to something to which it is not literally applicable in order to suggest a resemblance. Now, here's this is a metaphor. A mighty fortress is our God. God is not literally a fortress and a fort that's built around us. But we know what it means. It means that he surrounds us with protection. That's 
metaphorically speaking. And the book of Song of Songs is just through and through with metaphorical language that you you might look at it and go, huh? What did that mean? And that's what we're going to look at a little bit today. So there's this, this person, Solomon, and his beloved. And then it seems that there's also, in a few places, there's some other friends who comment on what's going on. So there's a man and a woman, and then their friends off to the side. In fact, let's look at chapter 8, verse 5. This is one of the friends' comments. Friends, who is this coming up from the desert, leaning on her lover? Beloved, under the apple tree, I roused you there. Your mother conceived you, and she was in labor, and she who was in labor gave you birth. So it's somebody looking from the outside in. Who is this coming up from the desert? So we see that there's three different groups of people. The problem with that, and it is under a matter of debate and matter of opinion, at which time who is speaking and whom they're speaking to. And so as you read the Song of Solomon, sometimes you go, well, who was that that just said that? And who were they talking to? I was reading this past week a version that actually had it color-coded so that you could see who was talking to who and who they were speaking to, and it made a whole lot more sense that way. Unfortunately, my Bible doesn't do it that way. Even though it's a matter of debate as to who is speaking at any given time, it is widely accepted that the beloved or the woman speaks the most. There's no allegory there. There is a possible pattern of the way that this, this book is, is set up also. In, um, it's a bride looking back over the early stages of the relationship all the way up through the wedding and so forth. In fact, you might even write this down if you have a, a piece of paper, if you're going to read back through this later. Chapter 1 and verse 2 through chapter 3 and verse 5 would be the events that are leading up to their marriage. Chapter 1, verse 2, through ver- chapter 3, verse 5. Chapter 3, verse 6, through verse 11, would be the bridal procession. Chapter 4, verse 1, through chapter 5, verse 1, would be their wedding and their wedding night. Oh yeah, it's in there. Chapter 5, verse 2, through chapter 8, verse 14, would be the early years of their married life. And if you didn't get that, I will give it to you later. But it's, it kind of helps if you, when you read through it, if you break it in those stages, you can kind of see how the relationship progresses through the book. Now, with that being said, we'll start reading our lesson text. <clears throat> Song of Songs. Chapter 2, and let's read verse 8. Listen, my lover, look, here he comes leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. Now, the speaker of this section that's identified as the bride or the beloved, depending on which version you're reading, is identified later, in fact, in chapter 6 and verse 13, as a Shulamite woman. Some commentators have suggested that Shulamite 
is a feminine version or a feminine form of the word Solomon, which would refer to this person as Solomon's woman. That's one version. Another possibility is that it designates her residence. There was a, a small town called Shunem, located near Mount Gilboa in northern Israel. Now, look at, at 1 Kings 1 and 3. And this is unrelated to the text, but it will help us look at something. 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 3. They searched throughout Israel for a beautiful girl and found Abishag, a Shunammite, and brought her to the king. It is not uncommon in ancient Middle Eastern languages for the letters L and N to be interchanged. If you did that, you would all, all of a sudden have a Shunammite and a Shulamite who could be the same person. So it's very likely that this person was a lady that was from this small town of Shunem. It also fits the location because it says that she saw Solomon leaping across the mountains and bounding over the hills. Uh, the small town of Shunem, you would actually have to go through hills and mountains to get there from where Solomon would have been. So it would be, again, going back to that descriptive language and poetic language, it would be very fitting that that would be who that person is. But you can go with either version. You won't hurt my feelings. Let's read verse 9 through 13. My lover is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. My lover spoke and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come with me. See, the winter is past, the rains are over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth, the season of singing has come, the cooing of doves is heard in our land. The fig tree forms its early fruit, the blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. Now, as we said earlier, at one time the Song of Songs was interpreted mainly as an allegory. Um, chapter 2, verse 14 No, I'm sorry. Chapter 2, verse 1. That's not what I wanted. I am the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valley. And then verse 4 is another verse that's used oftentimes as an allegory. He brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. That, that portion of that, that second half of that scripture is used often, that his banner over me is love. So we can see the allegory in there. Um, and again, with many people, it's simply all about spiritual things. It's all about Christ and His love for the church. But we have to realize that God allowed this tiny little book to be preserved for a purpose. And I don't believe that it was strictly to be as something that means something else. Because I think if you read through it, it has meaning on its own, taken literally and poetically. Because... And today, many commentators believe that the Song of Songs is exactly what it is. It is a series of poetic expressions of a couple's romantic love and passion. The, throughout the entire book, the couple, they, it's obvious that they possess this deep feelings and desire for each other, and it's expressed 
explicitly in the book. In this passage that we're looking at, the bride is most likely recalling an early time in their relationship while she awaited for Solomon to arrive for maybe a a springtime walk because that's where it heads to from there. The picture seems to be of a bride or a young lady sitting at her home in the mountains in the northern part of Israel waiting for Solomon to come visit her. As she describes the moment, she she describes Solomon as a gazelle or a young stag, that he's graceful. If he was the king, he probably did approach the place gracefully. He didn't come up to the door and kick the door in and and throw a smoke bomb in or whatever. So it was, again, it's that metaphorical language that is describing the gracefulness of King Solomon. It also suggests a certain amount of shyness and respect that Solomon had for his fiancée. It says that he he stands behind the wall and he, he gazes through the windows, peering through the lattice. That it, it seems that he's a little bit shy to go up to the door and and knock. So there's there's this real feelings. If you remember the first time you went on a date with somebody, how you felt as you went to the door to go pick them up the first time. You, maybe you got about halfway up the sidewalk and went, I don't know if I'm going to do this or not. And maybe that's the, the same feelings. And it, it helps us to see that those feelings are normal feelings. So then she recalls how when Solomon gets there, he invites her to take a walk with him. If you look through the Song of Solomon, you'll see that the the time period is always springtime. I think what that does, it suggests that it always shows their love as fresh and, and being renewed because springtime is exactly that. It's a time when you've been through winter and things are, are coming into to blossom and coming into bloom. And that's the way their love is described as it's always springtime. Now, in real life, it's not always springtime. But in this particular passage and in this particular book, that's how it, the setting has taken place. At this point, they are not married. They're dating, if you will. The emphasis in this portion is strictly on communication and getting to know each other, which is what dating should be. It hasn't really turned into that um, in today's society where you have speed dating, where you meet a group of people of about 50 and you have all the guys and all the girls and they sit at different tables, and then you have about 15 seconds to sit at that table, and you get about 15 seconds to talk to them, decide if you like them, a bell rings, you move to the next one. I didn't make it up. It's called speed dating. Now, while the Song of Songs is possibly not an allegory about God's love for His people, depending on your version of how you want to look at it. The metaphor of marriage is used a lot in the Bible to describe God's relationship with His people. In the covenant that God made with the the children of Israel at, at Sinai, idolatry was equated to adultery. So there is that, that symbolism of marriage and of, of um, 
relationship with God. Isaiah, Amos, and Hosea use the exact same comparisons to describe the people straying away from God. They compared idolatry to adultery. If you look in the New Testament, I don't think it's any accident that Jesus began his ministry where? At a wedding. The marriage of Cana. That's where he performed his first miracle, and that's officially where his ministry began. If you look at history, it actually began in Genesis chapter 2 and 18. We'll read that real quick. Genesis 2, 18. The Lord said, It is not good for a man to be alone. I will make a suitable helper for him. And if you skip down to verse 22, it goes through this, this steps that you often hear at, at weddings. Then the Lord God made woman from the rib he had taken out from the man, and he brought her to the man. Verse 23. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And you hear that at weddings all the time. That's in Genesis. If you skip all the way to the end of the book, in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 19, verse 6, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride had made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given for her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. History started with the wedding. There is references to marriage and weddings all through here relating to the church. And it ends, metaphorically, with this marriage supper of the Lamb. So obviously, whether the Song of Solomon is allegory of Christ's love for the church, or whether it's just poetic, romantic poetry... The Bible does talk about the connection between the two. Moving on. Song of Songs, chapter 7, verses 10 through 12. I belong to my lover and his desire is for me. Come, my lover, let us go to the countryside and let us spend the night in the villages. Let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded, if their blossoms have opened and if the pomegranates are in bloom. There will I give you my love. The images that we read in Song of Solomon, such as comparing her lover to a young gazelle, we probably wouldn't use that term. If you're dating and a girl asks another girl, well, what's he like? He's like a gazelle. <laughs> what, he has four legs? What? I mean, it's just, you don't really... Relate to that nowadays. The, the symbolism that's used are, are ancient. They're pastoral. Um, they're very Middle Eastern. And sometimes can, can be confusing. If you list it, look at some of the plants, the animals, and the cities, they really don't seem very familiar to us. But we have to realize that those were things of that day that were very descriptive of what they were. You, you read through the Song of Solomon, you hear them talk about figs and apples, which we can relate to, pomegranates, raisins, fawns, goats, lions, and leopards. And I can honestly say that I don't use those words very often in describing things. 
There are also some obscure comparisons whose meaning have or completely lost us. There's one saying that the beloved is as beautiful as the ancient city of Terza. Wow. But we look at it and go, I don't even know what that is. There's another place where Solomon says that his love is majestic as troops with banners. Just doesn't sound very romantic. But in that day, that was something very, very great. It was, it was a big deal. So we have to look at it the way that it was written and the time period that it was written in and realize that that was really romantic talk. Yes, it was. In chapter 2, the man described his desire to take his love to the countryside to enjoy the summertime. Or the springtime, rather. Now in, we're in chapter 7, and it's the bride's turn to take her husband to the countryside. At this point, they're married. Chapter 2, they weren't married. It seems that in chapter 7, she is asking him to take her on vacation. The way we could relate to it today. We don't ever go anywhere. Take me someplace. And I have to say, in looking at, at several of the married couples in this, in this congregation, and those of y'all that are listening through some other form of media, you don't know these people personally, but I, I have to tell you, I'm very proud of, of, of the way that most of the men in this congregation, in this classroom, do that. I look at, at the Ashleys that go on vacations. They just got back from Africa on a safari. I look at the Burrells and how they travel and, and they go places. You know what? That's wonderful. That's great. Because that's really what this whole seventh chapter is alluding to. The wife is saying, let's go on a, let's go on a vacation. Let's take a break. If you look through the Song of Solomon, you will see nothing mentioned in there about careers or children or any other things. It's about those two people and those two people alone. It says that she is excited over her husband's passion for her. And the word for de desire here implies this consuming passion or longing. This trip that she suggests going on, if you look back earlier in, in Song of Solomon, it was a trip that he suggested. And now later on, she's saying, well, why don't we do that now? Ever happen to anybody? Remember that trip you talked about taking one time? Let's just go do it. You know what? Go do it. There you go. Don't forget. The total focus in this chapter is on the couple and their expressions of love for each other. In chapter 7, verse 12, she makes it just plain obvious of what her intent is. And I'm not going to explain it because it's just pretty obvious. 
They're going to go out in the, in the vineyard and, and she wants to be intimate with him in the vineyard. I wouldn't recommend that because you can get arrested, but that was a different time. That's what it says. I didn't write it. The image, imagery here is both sensual and it's descriptive. And the two are they're sharing their love for each other the way that God intended for it to be when He created Adam and Eve. That's the way that it was supposed to be. And this is a beautiful, poetic version of the way that a husband and wife should love each other. Let's go to chapter 8, verse 6. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave, it burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. We'll stop there. In, in that day, a signet ring was used to impress the owner's signature on an official document. For instance, a king would take his ring, and it would have a, in something engraved or jewels or something that was exclusive to him, and it would either be wax or some soft substance, and he would press that ring into that to seal the document, and it would contain a permanent mark or a signature of that seal. And everybody would know whose it was. Just like your signature today. The seal, at that point, would represent the king's ownership or his authority. And such a ring, a ring like that was encrusted often with... Um, Jewels, it was made of some expensive metal, gold, or some other expensive metal, and it represented great value to the owner. In verse 6, the bride desires the same type of treasured place as that signet ring. She desires that same type of place in Solomon's heart. And that's what this metaphorical language is here. She wanted his seal as a permanent indication of his love for her just like the seal on that document. Now let's read the rest of that. Verse 7. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away. If one were to give all the wealth of his house for love, it would be utterly scorned. It burns like a blazing fire. That's actually the second. Let's go back to verse 6. It burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. And then it goes into many waters cannot quench love. Let's go back to that mighty flame thing again. While, if you look through the Song of Solomon, the name of God does not appear anywhere in the Song of Songs. There is an interpretation in this most vehement flame, the way it reads in the King James Version, that the, the word that's used for that ends with the syllable Y-A-H, which is a shortened form of the Hebrew word for God, Yahweh. Now, therefore, it could be translated to say that the couple's love burns like a flame of Yahweh himself. Now, that's a stretch. I will give you that. That's a kind of a wide stretch on a translation. 
But whether that's a stretch or not, it is obvious, and there's little doubt, that the love described in this book comes from God. Even though God is not mentioned directly, there is no doubt that this love is from God. It is not, as some people have suggested, and even believe that the Song of Solomon is a disguised picture of a sacred marriage of a Canaanite goddess and a king that intend to bring fertility to the land. That's not what it is. This is a godly thing. If it wasn't, it would not have been preserved all through these thousands of years so that we would have it today to read. In fact, the the purity and depth of the relationship described here are good arguments for the fact that God Himself took a hand in preserving this picture of what romance should be. It actually just proves that that's the case. I believe that God wanted to show His people how human love between a man and a woman in all its fullness was really meant to be. Because so many people today, the only example they have is what they see on television or in movies. And that's their whole description of what love is supposed to be. In this passage, it shows the culmination of the couple's love. In fact, if you you go through the segments like we divided it up at the beginning, this is that portion of their marriage where they're they're actually married and they're 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 married and they're enjoying each other. The bride desires to be the groom's most valuable possession. That's her desire. I want to be your most valuable possession. I want that seal on my heart like the seal of a ring. I want that same feeling. Verse 6 shows the the permanent nature. Let's look at verse 6. It, it shows the permanent nature of marriage. Just as death doesn't let go, that's the way that this writer was describing love. It's just as strong as death. It doesn't change. It doesn't let go. And then it goes on to say that in verse 7, that even though the waters might flood against it, it cannot quench this love. Now, what, what, what are those waters? The, they're the, the hard times. The tribulation, the trials that you go through, the, the arguments, if you've ever had any. Robert Quillen, this is a quote. I love this. A happy marriage is the union of two good forgivers. A happy union is the union of two good, a happy marriage is the union of two good forgivers. So all of those waters can't quench it. All of those things cannot wash it away. If a person tried to buy it with all the wealth of their house, somebody would just look at you and go, please. That's what it's saying. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7, Paul talked about love in a little bit different way. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. 
Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And you know, so many times we read that, and we read it about loving our brother, loving our neighbor, loving our whoever. But if you look at it in the sense that we're looking at it today, these this is the kind of love that the water can't wash away. It's solid, it's steady. Because when you love like this, like Paul described, nothing can tear it apart. That type of unstoppable love is priceless. And I believe that God has designed the romantic love between a man and a woman to be passionate, to be enjoyable, and to be enduring. I also believe that God recognized that that in a marriage you're taking two people that are sinful by nature originally, imperfect human beings, and that there would be some, some friction between them. Even though He set up the whole sanctity of marriage, I believe that God knew that there were going to be some times when those people didn't see eye to eye. Now, Song of Solomon... There's never an argument in there. There's never a, a misspoken word. There's, there's nothing like that in there. So maybe that part of it's not very realistic. But what is realistic is the true love and the passion that's shown in this book, in the Bible. That's right. I believe that God's love is meant to endure and our love for our spouse and be valued above everything else. God is love. That's what the Bible says. If God is love, then that love is of God. Unfortunately, few things have become as distorted today as the concept of love the worldly tendency is to put all of the emphasis on the romantic part. And with a lot of young people, they maybe date somebody, they think they fell in love and they get married and they think it's going to be this happily ever after because that's what they saw in the movie. And then they find out that it wasn't quite that, that way when they got married that they only saw the good part of that person because when they were dating, the other person was always on their best behavior. And now that they're married, they sometimes don't feel like they have to be. And so reality sets in. Good point. If you listen to a lot of music, whether it's older music or modern music, in fact, back in the 60s, the, the, the Beatles had a, a big hit, and there was a line in the song that said, love is all you need. All you need is love. Well, that's good, but it takes a little bit more than that. If you look at 1 Corinthians, it talks about some other things that you better have in the marriage other than just I love you. Those of you that have been married for a long time said Amen. 
Of course, there are many non-Christians that believe that love is, is mainly about sex and that sex is just as good and maybe even better if it's enjoyed outside of marriage. Uh, the late Audrey Hepburn made a statement. She was asked why she had made her, kept her decision not to ever marry her longtime lover, and she said it's because love was more romantic that way. And then on the other hand, you have some Christians that would say that the only thing we should care about are the spiritual things, and we should ignore all the romantic love. Either way, on the opposite spectrums, you're wrong. You know, it, it's funny when you look at things like that. Anybody that goes way, 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 way out either direction is generally lost. It comes back to that moderation and staying in between and having balance. There has to be some of each of those. But you can go so far one way. There are people that, that are so spiritual that, that they wouldn't even think about having this conversation we're having this morning. But you know what? Why wouldn't we? We're reading straight out of the Bible. Why wouldn't we have this lesson this morning? Now I've got to admit, I was when I first started studying this lesson, I almost called Pastor Magine and said, I'd really like for you to teach this Sunday. <laughs> Romantic love is by no means as important as salvation. I'm not going to say that. But let's look at, um, in the book of James, verse 1 and 17, that man should not think he will receive, 1 and 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. And that means if it's romance and those type of things, they're included. I believe as long as we obey God's basic guidelines, there is no reason we can't enjoy love as much as we want. In fact, God's love for us and the example that God has given us of self-sacrificial Faithful, forgiving love provides a model that should make we as Christians the best lovers of anybody because we have the greatest example of someone that loves. Now, there's a couple other verses I want to look at as we close here. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 through 29. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the Word, and to present her to Himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, for who loves his, for who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. Paul, writing back to the Ephesians in one of his letters, obviously saw something in the church that he needed to address. 
That's what, if you read the, the letters that Paul wrote, all the epistles, that's what they were. Paul would see something when he would go through and on his journeys, and then he would say, you know, I, I better write something back to them to kind of explain something to them. And in this book, in this chapter, in these verses we're reading, he goes into depth to explain how a husband should love his wife. And a lot of times we, we read these scriptures and, and we just kind of rush through them and, yeah, that's good, that's the Bible, yeah, that's great. And we don't really look at that's what Paul was saying, that's what you do. And of all the things that were written by men of God over all the years, these scriptures that we have is what God chose to be preserved for us today. And if through all of that, and through all of the adversity that has taken place through the, the t- passage of time, these scriptures have been preserved, then they're there for a reason. 1 John 4, verse 7 and 8. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Now, generally, this is one of those scriptures that we talk about in loving in general, our neighbors and our friends and the world around us. But look at it in the context we're looking at today, when we read this, as loving your spouse. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Verses 11 and 12. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and His love is made complete in us. Now, rather than taking that as just a general love your neighbor type thing, if you apply that to the your marriage, then we see that that kind of love is from God. And for so many years, I believe, that we have skipped over those things in teaching to young people, to young adults, even to older married people, about what kind of love there should be between a husband and a wife. Why? Well, you just you don't talk about those things in church. Well, if you don't talk about them in church, where are you going to talk about them? If you're not going to talk about them using the Bible, what better guideline to use? You're going to go out to the bookstore and buy somebody's book on love and use that as an authoritative commentary on love as opposed to the Bible? Just read through the Song of Solomon, I'm telling you. It's as good as any book you can buy. 1 Peter 4 and 8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. This is a great one for marriage. See, I don't even have to explain that. And everybody just smiles and says, you're right. Let me quote Martin Luther. Here's what Martin Luther said. This is how a marriage should be. Let the wife make her husband glad to come home and let him make her sorry to see him leave. Read that one more time for all the guys that didn't catch it. Let the wife make her husband glad to come home. Yeah. The guys all said, Amen. But the second half says, And let him make her sorry to see him leave. 
Not when you leave. She goes, oh, I thought he'd never leave. <laughs> oh. I believe that's what makes a marriage bond. Well, the scriptures that we've just read are not quite as descriptive or poetic as the Song of Solomon. And mostly they're used in in speaking of loving our neighbors and our friends and so on. We can't neglect to apply it to the one person that God has given us to be a part of our lives, and that's our spouse. All of these scriptures about love, if we just apply them to our neighbor, and we don't even apply them to the person that we live in the same house with, we really haven't accomplished what God set out for us to do. It, yes. And, and, you know, almost any scripture is open to a certain amount of interpretation as to what the meaning of it is, except Song of Solomon, which is pretty obvious what that is. But with things like that in the Word of God, I believe that we as Christians, we need to look at it and say, then it's okay? Yeah. It is okay. I think we should teach our children that these things between a man and a wife are fine. As long as it's between a man and his wife. And that romance is something that can be a part of Christians' lives. It's true. And there are, like I said before, there are some people that are just way too spiritual to be romantic. You need to wake up. You're really not that spiritual. And I'll close with one last verse. I believe this kind of sums up our lesson completely. It goes to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 14. Do everything in love. God bless you.